And that really translated to a full case of what people label now as imposter syndrome, where I was like, I'm the worst pilot in the squadron. I'm letting everyone down. Everyone else is smarter than me. I'm never going to be able to learn all this stuff. And it was just a shock to the system because I had done so well up to that point. I don't think I had really ever experienced extreme adversity that was long lasting. And it just like completely disrupted my identity of myself. I was like, if I'm not the straight A student first in the class or top 10% of my class, who am I and why do I deserve to be here? And I really struggled with that for several years at the beginning of my career. This is the Limitless Athlete Podcast. I'm Tom Foxley, founder of MindsetRx and your host. And I believe that vulnerability is your superpower. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm willing to work as hard as I can. There is no past, there's no future, there's just this moment right here. If I did that, if I can get through that, like, come at me. Changing how I saw myself, like, as a man, not just as, as an athlete. It's okay that I struggle. It's okay, that's part of the deal. That's how I respond to it. A few years back, we worked with an athlete called Kat. Kat was the partner of a gym owner, a good athlete, but who struggled with skill work. She also struggled with how she appeared in front of the rest of the community that she led. Because of this, she held back from practicing skills and pushing her limits in front of others. Of course, this just slowed her progress and growth. Over the following months, we taught her the power of vulnerability. She began feeling comfortable with messing up skills in front of others while she was learning them. She fell whilst practicing handstand walking, but learned to laugh about it. She pushed her limits and completely blew up in workouts, but she learned not to feel judged. She signed up for the next level of competition and fully committed when she was there. She learned to go all in on her. Because of this, she not only reached her next level of performance, but felt more confident and secure in herself too. When we wrapped up our coaching time, she spoke words I'll never forget. Vulnerability is my superpower. Today's podcast embraces how to be vulnerable as an athlete. I speak to former Thunderbird pilot Michelle Mace Curran about how she overcame imposter syndrome and the fear of failure through embracing vulnerability in an authentic way. Michelle is a US Air Force major and was formerly the lead solo pilot in the Thunderbirds, the first female to fly that position. She's now coaching others on how to embrace their vulnerability for growth and become a better public speaker. Now, I bring you the wonderful Michelle Curry. Usually the way I start this podcast is going straight into the questions, but I'm really interested in how you're going to frame this. And it's a kind of, it's an open-ended question, but how do you introduce yourself? Like what, what's your bio? So, yeah, I, I get this question a lot and people want to introduce me as by my rank and stuff. And I'm like, so I've, I've left active duty. So I just say Michelle Mace Curran. A lot of people call me Mace though, which is my call sign. Um, if you've seen Top Gun, you get how those work. And then former Thunderbird lead solo, former fighter pilot, Air Force veteran. Usually the things that pack up at the end. Yeah. Um, Have you noticed an uptick in in, uh, interest since the new Top Gun movie came out? Uh, 
I think I was in kind of a lucky spot to begin with where I had a, a really great community that had grown around me when I was on the team. And, and that's most of those people have stuck with me, even though I'm not posting epic cockpit footage as much anymore. I'm kind of transitioned into a lot more mindset, motivational stuff. Um, but in general, I think fighter pilots are seeing a lot more attention since the new Top Gun. People are, businesses are wanting to host Top Gun themed events, which is pretty awesome. That is pretty cool. That is really cool. So one of the things that I figured out is like you were, I don't know, you, you're a kid who kind of shy, right? You're kind of um, like holding back, but there was a side of you that wanted to go full in on things. Like talk to me about Jurassic Park and paleontology. Yeah, I I'm, I don't know if this is a strange kid. Looking back at it now, I think a lot of kids are like this. You don't, you want to put people in little boxes and label them. Um, but I think a lot of people have, multiple parts of their personality that don't necessarily naturally go together. So yeah, I had a super, I would say adventurous, curious, driven side. And then I had another side that had like social anxiety and hated being put on the spot was super shy. Wasn't great in like big groups and making big groups of friends. and was a little bit awkward and would prefer to just stay quiet in the background. And those two don't necessarily complement each other the best, especially when you look at what I went on to do and being a fighter pilot. Um, but yeah, I, as a kid, I would find things that intrigued me and I would dive in head first to them. So Jurassic Park came out, I think when I was in first or second grade and my parents actually wouldn't let me go see it. And I was so mad. I was so mad that I actually remember now how feeling how mad I was because my brother and sister got to go and see it at the theater. They're older. Um, but when I did, I was like, all right, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be an archaeologist or a paleontologist. I went to archaeology summer camp and I like just dove into it. Um, after that summer camp, it was in Wisconsin. We did not find anything cool. And it was about a hundred degrees out and humid. And I was like, okay, this isn't for me. Just kidding. <laughs> Next. <laughs> what were you like as a kid? Like you, you mentioned you were kind of shy and a bit withdrawn sometimes, but also had that, that interest in adventure. Like what, what were you like? So I grew up in a small town, about 4,000 people, um, north central Wisconsin, out in the country. So my grandparents owned a farm and we lived right next door to them. And I would describe it as kind of like a free range kid. My mm -hmm. you know, first thing in the morning after breakfast, I would go outside and I wouldn't come back until it was time to eat meals. So I would be out, you know, building tree forts and finding like animals in the barn, like baby kittens and all that kind of thing and building rafts in the uh, woods. There's a river near our house. And I think it's probably good that my mom didn't know all the things I was getting into. She would have been worried, but I think that really built a foundation for a sense of adventure and just being curious about what's out there and kind of going after it. Was there anyone who exemplified that for you? Yeah. Growing up, I was, so my dad, he traveled for work Monday through Friday and was just there on the weekends. So it created kind of a special relationship where probably much to my mom's disappointment where she had to do all the heavy lifting of the discipline and that kind of thing. And when he was there, it was almost like a special occasion. So we developed a really strong relationship around going outdoors and into the woods and doing things together, whether that was like hunting or hiking or whatever it was. And I think him just opening that world to me as a girl, because it was mostly boys in that environment or men in that environment. Um, when I would join him 
for hunting trips. I was oftentimes the only girl there. Um, that kind of set me up with some confidence. And then that also just exposed me to the outdoors and all the amazing stuff that it has to offer. So I really looked up to him, um, for those reasons growing up. And I mean, still, still now I give him a lot of credit for kind of that part of my personality. Yeah. What kind of example did he set? He, so I think a lot of people kind of are scared of the unknown and it's outside their comfort zone. Mm -hmm. And he was just really open to that stuff when it came to, um, getting outside and what I think a lot of people classify as going on adventures. Mm -hmm. And he also, him and my mom, both my parents made it very clear that like to them, gender wasn't a, a thing. Like I didn't only play with Barbies because I was a girl or I didn't not get dirty because of this, or I didn't get to not go hunting with my dad because all like it, the world was just open. There were no like barriers placed. And so as I grew up and thought about what I wanted to do as an adult, that didn't even cross my mind that I couldn't do something because of gender, which obviously I went into a fairly uh, extreme side of that being like 2% of fighter pilots are women, but I think that really just opened up the possibilities for me and let me chase my interests and my passions without barriers. Do you remember any stories where your gender became like a thing and you didn't realize there was a thing because of your family upbringing? Like in, I don't know, in those hunting examples, those hiking examples, being outdoors early days where you're kind of like, oh, like I've, I've learned something here. Uh, I don't think I there's no, no memories that really stick out until I was already in the air force hmm. training pipeline. And I had one point where it was getting towards the end of the formal year long training where we would find out which aircraft we would go fly. Hmm. And a lot of people were competing to get a fighter aircraft. It's highly sought after. And there's also not very many available. So in my class of 25, two of us ended up getting fighters and it was getting down to the wire and it was between myself and one other guy to be second um, of the eligible people in our class. And we knew that that was kind of going to be the determining thing. And at one point he was like, I don't even know why I care about this check ride because it doesn't matter if I do better than you or not, they're going to give you one to check the diversity box because you're a woman. Like he literally said that to me. And I was just like, that was the first time that someone was so brazen with a remark like that. And I was like, very caught off guard. Um, turns out I did much better than him on the check ride and it didn't matter. I deserved that spot, but there were a few instances like that where I got singled out. Um, I was like, okay, this is a thing. Um, and it made me more aware of it. And it became, despite my upbringing, it definitely became a thing where I kind of struggled with my identity in that space for a while until I mm. just got more confident and more experienced. Yeah. I, I definitely want to, um, definitely want to dig into that at some point but we'll, we'll circle around to it after a little bit of a, a side yeah, navigation. <laughs> yeah no no that's 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 my style of interviewing it's, it's going everywhere um but what made you like it's, it's an obvious question and i think when like i've been asked it a few like quite a few times and i think everyone who's been in the military at some point has been asked it a few times but i've got like two levels of answers i'll tell someone kind of the upfront kind of 
answer about oh this is why i joined the military and it's, it's easy and quick and ready to go and then i've got the kind of the messy answer to which kind of involves like i don't really know why i felt like i was kind of needed to prove my masculinity in a way and like overcome a bunch of hurdles and like there was the kind of the challenge of it and like the like yeah and there's all that kind of thing what was the the driver for you the messy one if there is one yeah because i people want to hear the answer i wanted to be something bigger than myself and i was driven to defend our country and and of course that those were factors eventually but i growing up it wasn't something i was interested in um i was about halfway through high school and again my dad was like hey I was a really good student. I basically a straight A student in high school. And there, my parents were like, Hey, we do not have a college fund for you, but you should be able to get scholarships. So let's start looking at opportunities to get your education paid for. And my dad had gone to the university of Wisconsin, Madison, and was familiar with ROTC. He had seen the cadets there and knew that most of them are on scholarships. And he proposed that I apply for air force ROTC, which is a way to commission as an officer. And they give away four-year scholarships to pay for your education. And my initial reaction was, uh, no, I do not want to do that. I want to be a normal college kid. I want to go to parties. I want to live on campus in the dorms. And I just had this idea that I couldn't do both. I didn't know what the program was really like. Um, And then he kind of showed me some of the opportunities that came with joining the Air Force with the job you have the pay that's available the career opportunities there are and then really the travel that was the biggest thing I wanted to travel the world and get out of my small town and that was such a great way to do it so we dug into it more and I ended up applying for a scholarship and got one and so then I was off to to join the Air Force and I feel like I went in fairly naive as to what it all entailed and what I was really getting myself into, but it ended up being an environment I really enjoyed and thrived in. Yeah. Yeah. I think you kind of have to be a little bit naive to begin with. It's like, it'd be quite abrasive otherwise, but it's like, yeah, like this is actually what I was looking for the whole time. And then what was it? Like, I, I think everyone can find your, um, your bio and the kind of the phases that you went through pretty easily if they, if they're looking online and kind of like, the kind of the standout moments, but what were the the low moments? Like what were the the challenges that you faced? Like either in the early days of the military or the end, like what what challenges did you, did you really struggle with? There are a lot. And that's something that I've reflected on a lot as I've left active duty and as I've tried to find the best way to use my story and my experiences to really inspire other people and motivate other people. Mm-hmm. People don't want to hear about fast jets flying close together and upside down. Like they do for a very short period of time. That doesn't leave a huge impact on people. That's like, Oh, that's a really cool job. What leaves an impact is actually being vulnerable with that stuff and being authentic because I think people see the finished product. They see the lead solo of the air force Thunderbirds. And it's very easy to put us on a pedestal and assume that we were just like, I was just the golden child that sailed through everything. You know, I was, I was knowing exactly what to do and not having any speed bumps. And it's quite the opposite from that. I, I did do really well all the way through pilot training and getting the F-16, which was this goal I had set all the way back in college. And I'd been working towards it for about five years at that point. 
And then I got to my first combat squadron and I was a criminal justice major. One of the phases I went through was wanting to work for the FBI or the CIA. And that was my whole goal. And I was going to go into the Air Force Air Force for four years to pay back my education and to have military experience on my resume and then go apply to a three-letter agency. Um, but I actually saw some fire aircraft fly about halfway through college. And I was like, holy crap, that looks awesome. That curious, adventurous side of my personality was like, we want to do that, forget the FBI. And so I kind of pivoted, but, uh, I had set that goal at that point. I was like, this is what I'm going to do. And I just worked relentlessly to check off the boxes to make it happen. And then I got there and I hated it. <laughs> like, which people have a hard time understanding because it's such people romanticize the career field so much. And it just looks really cool and really exciting. And it is, but it's also extremely complex and it's extremely demanding and the schedule is crazy and it's hard on your body and it's very technical. And so the flying portion, like the physical left hand, right hand flying, I took to fairly quickly and did well at, but as we got into the technical parts and learning frequencies and how a radar works and how our different sensors and pods communicate with other assets and it was just very complex to me. And most of my peers were either mechanical or aeronautical engineers. And so a lot of them had a baseline of those concepts and it was all new to me. And I found myself feeling really in over my head, feeling like I got to this spot. And now that I was there, I definitely didn't deserve to be there. And that really translated to a full case of what people label now as imposter syndrome, where I was like, I'm the worst pilot in the squadron. I'm letting everyone down. Everyone else is smarter than me. I'm never going to be able to learn all this stuff. And it was just a shock to the system because I had done so well up to that point. I don't think I had really ever experienced extreme adversity that was long lasting. And it just like completely disrupted my identity of myself. I was like, if I'm not the straight A student first in the class or top 10% of my class, who am I and why do I deserve to be here? And I really struggled with that for several years at the beginning of my career. Hey, if you're enjoying this episode, chances are you'll enjoy our free ebook, How to Stop Substandard Self-Critical Plateaus and Unleash Your Potential. It's a step-by-step guide to finding your mojo again and getting back to the athlete you know you can be. It's free, you just have to stick your email address in and download it. To find it, head to mindsetrx.com slash ebook. That's mindsetrxd.com slash ebook. Now let's get on with the show. Yeah, that the piece that really stuck out to me there was the adversity that's long lasting. Because I feel like a short term adversity we can kind of we're kind of primed for like we can fight back but it's that ongoing nature of it the kind of the dredging on like how did how did you deal with that not very well for a long time honestly I, looking back i i reacted poorly i in hindsight you know it being 2020 there's so many things i could have done better mm-hmm. i found myself living in this like mental cave where i was afraid to show vulnerability to my peers I felt like I had to prove myself. Part of that was being one of the only women flying for the squadron, but 
also just dealing with that imposter syndrome, not feeling like I belonged there. And so I hid it from everyone. And I, what I needed to do is slowly chip away at all this new information I needed to learn, you know, break it down to small pieces, slowly learn it. Like you learn anything new. And what I needed to do is ask questions and find a mentor and get support. But instead I procrastinated going to study this stuff because it was just so overwhelming. And I didn't ask questions because I didn't want people to know that I didn't know the thing I was asking about. Right. Cause I was afraid to show that vulnerability that I didn't already know it. So that just makes it worse because now you're hamstringing your ability to dig yourself out of this hole that you're in. And I mean, I was probably looking back, I would say now that I was probably almost in like a clinical depression. Like I probably should have reached out for to someone and gotten some sort of help or support from anyone, my peers, whoever it was, but I didn't have the self-awareness then to realize that. And I, so I just slogged on and just muscled my way through it for about three years, which is a long time. Yeah. And that must be especially tough when you're like your narrative and your experience in educational environments until that point had been straight A's or thereabouts. Like it's kind of probably not smooth sailing. I'm, I'm not saying it was easy for you to get to that point, but the result had been similar. Um, the kind of the end result. So to be faced with something that's truly making you think like, shit, is this even worth it? Like, am I good enough to be here? That must've been so shocking to your system. Yeah. Yeah. It, my sense of identity was just, I was embarrassed. I didn't even want to tell my parents about how I felt because I felt like I had always been there, like their kid that was just easy. I never got into trouble. I always got straight A's. I got a scholarship to college. Like they were so proud of me that I didn't want to disappoint them. And all of this was going on at my first squadron, which was in Japan. So I'm living in a foreign country. My family's not there. My friends aren't there. My only friends are my coworkers. And I always feel a little guilt when I talk about this because they were great people. They did. They, this is not a hit on them or the environment in the squadron. It was just a busy, stressful time with a really high ops tempo. So we were working 12 plus hour days all the time, sometimes 14, 15 hour days. And people are just trying to survive their own lives, right? People have kids, people have families. So it's more on me that I didn't, you know, reach out and have the humility and the willingness to be vulnerable, to be like, Hey, I'm struggling with these things. I need some help because there are people that would have been there for me. I just yeah. felt like I had to put on the front you know, like I had to prove that I was meant to be there and that I was good enough. And I didn't want to show anyone that there was weakness. Mm. So what was the fear within that? If you did express vulnerability, what were you concerned would happen? That people would all, it would be my, my fighter pilot costume that I put on to go to work would be ripped off and they would actually see me as my real self, right? Someone that has doubts, someone that isn't actually as smart as they think I am all, all the feelings you have when you feel like you aren't good enough to be somewhere. And so that was my worst nightmare was just people realizing that. And, and that all comes from just such a fear of failing. Mm -hmm. And I would just shied away from it at all. And I, I limited myself a lot on opportunities I could have taken advantage of like things would constantly come up in the squadron where they'd be looking for volunteers to go do all these different things 
to go do work trips to different countries, to take a jet for maintenance over to Korea, to whatever it is. And all those things would have really been great learning experiences for me. They would have been beneficial. And I think I would have enjoyed them. But as soon as they would pop up, I'd be like, Ooh, that sounds cool. And then immediately I'd be like, Nope, like there's a lot of vulnerability and chance of failure that comes with that. And I would just not put my name in the hat for anything. Um, and so, yeah, it, it really slowed down my progress in becoming a better pilot and just more comfortable in that role in my career for quite a while. When did it change? <laughs> so one of the hard things about being in the military is moving every few years. But in this case, it was it was much needed because I had just stagnated in that environment and just was stuck in my own my own head. All these things I had, even though talking to the people that are stationed with me, I still run into them occasionally. Like we're still friends and they thought I was doing fine. They thought I was doing great. Like there wasn't, I wasn't just royally screwing things up at work. Um, it was all my perception of how they thought of me and how I was doing. And so I got my next assignment, went off to Texas. And mm. part of it was that I'd now been flying the F-16 at for three years, I become a flight lead, which means I could lead formations with four jets or two or four jets into combat. And so your confidence just naturally grows a little bit in your career field as you gain the experience over those first, you know, two to three years. But then a physical change of environment was just a catalyst. It was a new group of people. I was back in the States. I made a conscious decision that I could reinvent myself almost. And I could, this was a fresh chance to just dive into learning everything. Um, it was a slightly different F-16. The engine was different. So I had to learn a lot of the basic stuff again anyway. And the mission focus was different. So I had to gain proficiency on that mission set anyway. So it was such a great chance to be like, okay, I don't know anything. Like, let's build this from the bottom up. And I just dove into everything at work and in my, in my personal life, I talking about hobbies. I had all these hobbies I'd wanted to pursue, but just been like, Oh, someday I'll hopefully do that. I'd love to get into that someday. I was like, no, for, forget it. Like I'm going to take all this leave I have. Cause you know, we get 30 days a year of leave, but you don't necessarily get to take that because the demands of the squadron. Right. So I had taken like no leave in three years, like barely any. So I had tons. I was like, I'm taking this. I'm going to go learn technical mountaineering. So I went and did that. I'm going to travel to Nepal and trek to Everest base camp. So I did that. I started signing up for marathons and training for those and running them. And all those things kind of combined to just completely shifting from the super limited mentality of this is just who I am. I'm not good enough to be here to what's the worst that could happen if I go all in on this and what's the worst that could happen if I ask for help and what's the worst that could happen if I put myself out there and the growth over probably a year and a half to two years was astounding. I completely transformed as a person. Were there times when it, cause like in that process and that's an incredible story by the way, cause it, it speaks to so many, I've got to remember to come back to that original point. Um, in that, it, that process sounds very similar to, a lot of athletes when they're like they the the edge of making this this kind of their next level in performance and they're finding themselves running up against those those self-imposed roadblocks time time again 
um, and they they change their environment and that changes and they kind of have that freedom to let go of their old identity it, it gives them that kind of permission but along that way there's one story is phased out and another story is phased in and there are these steps that you take where it feels like a bit of a risk to kind of offer up a kind of a, an admission of vulnerability or admission that you don't know anything or as much as you portray or that you think you portray were there any moments where you th- felt like oh, i'm going to be vulnerable now i'm going to take this risk to ask for help or something similar um and i'm concerned about the outcome yeah so i there's a specific one that i feel like really tested my ability to overcome that little voice of self-doubt that i had just let mm-hmm. run my life for so long um it was after I had made all those decisions to do all those hobbies and pursue my passions. And so I had become more confident um, just in general, but professionally as well. And then an email came out and it was asking for an instructor pilot to go to Poland for the summer and to teach their pilots and their F-16s. And my initial reaction was, I was so excited. I was like, what an amazing opportunity. I've never been to Poland. I'll get to live there for three months. I get to fly their F-16s, which are very nice and new, a lot fancier than ours. Um, and like, what a cool way to experience their culture. And I had just finished the process of becoming an instructor. It's a pretty rigorous upgrade of going through all these flights and being graded and getting really good at teaching because it's a transition from just leading a formation to teaching people to become um, better pilots. And I had finished that upgrade like three days or four days before this email came out. So I was literally like the squadron's newest instructor pilot. And that all of a sudden like popped into my mind. Like there are so many people that would be more qualified than me to go do this. There'd be so many better options. I'm definitely not the best person for this job. They also don't have any female F-16 pilots in their entire country. So they they haven't had any women fly with those squadrons. And there's definitely a culture that is created in the squadron. I didn't know what the Polish military culture was like in general. I didn't know what it would be like to step in there. And it's like all those doubts, all those the little troll on your shoulder that's just like, and have you thought about this? And what about this? And you'll probably fail because of this. And then it was this strange experience, like, almost seeing it from a third person perspective where I was like, this is exactly what you've been trying to get over for the last year to two years. These, this is, this is the moment, or this is a great example of a moment you've been training for. Like you've been creating this mindset to put yourself out there and to take risks and go after opportunities. And this is about as in your face as you can get of what a great opportunity. And here's all the doubts that go with it. And so I applied for it and ended up going and it was hard, but it was also one of the most rewarding experiences of my entire career. And I thought that was just such a great example of testing to see how willing I was to actually tell that voice in the back of my head to like, shut up and we're going to go give this a shot. Yeah. Like, at some point during a mindset shift, you become distinctly aware of the story and the voice. And you're like, oh, okay, I hear it time and time again. I become familiar. And you just observe, 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 observe until you observe so far that you can see it before it's taken hold. 
and before yeah. it's kind of built up momentum and that's yeah. that moment there it's like oh i've got a choice here and i can see the path that i would have gone down and i can see the path that i can go down and that's fascinating to see like the actual example because in reality there's these choices the whole time but unless you become aware of it unless you see it clearly that choice doesn't actually exist yeah yeah it, it's amazing the perspective you can gain if you are intentional with with doing work in that space and like examining where your thoughts come from and how they gain momentum and how you get stuck in this loop. And it's, it's really cool. And it's so crazy to look back, you know, and you're like, Oh man, what was I thinking? How did I, how was I so unaware of the place I was putting myself in? Yeah. That's the point of life, right? Is to to look back and go, Oh, what was I thinking? <laughs> like, how was I so yeah, different? Um, <laughs> It seems to me as well, like you're at that point. Well, let me back up a little bit before I get into that question. When I went through training, there's this idea of be the gray man, be the gray man and don't stand out. And like, don't be individual because you just want to get through training. It's difficult and you don't want to make yourself a target um, for whatever reason. Don't be too good. Don't be too bad. Just blend in. And then I think I was very different because I was a reservist, but then you kind of get put in an environment and you're a new person. It's like, again, blend in, but there's a point, And I think this happens with, though this definitely happens with athletes too and coaches and the, the CrossFit community where you have to lean into your individuality because it feels like you're kind of betraying your most, not only authentic expression, but your unique skill set that you can offer everyone else. And by going away and like, and starting mountaineering and learning all those skill sets and, and hiking in the pool, like, you lent into your authenticity there and you lent into your individuality that that must've been a huge transition for you as well. Absolutely. I, that first year section of my career, I felt a huge disconnect between who I felt like I had to be at work and who I had to be to all of my peers and coworkers to fulfill this fighter pilot persona that is portrayed on Top Gun, for example, that, you know, confidence bordering on arrogance, that super type A personality, that is just not my personality at all. I'm very driven, but I'm also very kind of like even keeled, reserved. I'm like, I'm just not in your face at all. That's not my natural for me. And it felt so forced and it was exhausting. And so while I transitioned into this whole new squadron and new environment, I kind of was just like, let's just be me and let's just go after the things I'm passionate about and let's just see what happens. And I made the most amazing friends there. Like the connections I developed were incredible. You have to be vulnerable in order to develop connections like that. And all of a sudden I realized that although the media might group all fighter pilots into this like same personality type, it's a diverse group. And there are people that have their inner hippies that like would love to be rock climbers living in a van. And there are people that I had so many of these guys and I went to a reserve squadron, but I was still active duty. So most of the squadron, I mean, it was all men. I was the only uh, female pilot, but they were also in their forties or older. So they all kind of had already gone through that shift that I went through where they stopped being like trying to conform to the culture. And so it was just such a great environment to allow me to do that. And people just came out of the woodwork that were like, I just love that. You just went to Nepal. That's so awesome. I want to do that. Like these people are 10 years older than me and way, way more experienced pilots that I look up to. 
would constantly stop me in the hallway and ask me about what I'd done over the weekend and like what cool outdoor adventure I was going on and what I was working on. And they were just excited to hear about it. And it, it was just such a great environment. There was such a culture of support and trust in that squadron where you didn't worry about people judging you and you didn't worry about making mistakes because you knew that people looked at them as opportunities to learn, not opportunities to put you in your place or to make fun of you or whatever it was. And yeah, it was just such a contrast to the first few years. Yeah. And that all came about from the decision to be yourself and be authentic and to be vulnerable. It's incredible that because like the part of the fear is that not only will everyone else see these vulnerabilities and these weaknesses, but so will I, and I'll have to own up to them. And that's the painful thing really. It's like, Oh, like I'm not perfect and I'm not this kind of straight A student and I'm not this perfect athlete. Um, and I know it too. And I'm admitting that to myself as well. Um, what kind of, yeah, what were the things, the the specific things that were thrown up to you um, as a kind of or made apparent to you when you did that? Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of it was that I realized people would be like, "Oh, you're so humble," and even when I was on the Thunderbirds, people would be like, "You're incredibly humble for this success you've had," and that's how they see it. But I did realize that I really did struggle with my own self doubt, like it. It was something that I learned to manage as I went through that transition, but it was something that just never went away. And it was always kind of something I had to have perspective on and manage because I would still find myself even at the peak of my career performing at what a lot of people look at as the elite level of flying. And I would still find myself doubting if I deserved to be there. And I'm like, here I am a beacon to little girls like and women of what you can achieve. And I go and meet people in the audience in the crowd after a show and they would be coming up and be like, Oh, can we take pictures with you? Can like asking questions, all this stuff. I was a role model. I was put on this pedestal. And meanwhile, I still was struggling with, am I really good? Like, am I good enough to be here? And being introverted, I actually found all of those, those social interactions and, public affairs demands of being on the team exhausting. You always had to be on, you always had to be like the face of the air force. And I would get very tired of that part of it, even though it was also the most rewarding part. And then I would start to feel guilty because I would avoid people. Sometimes I would like go hide in the bathroom for a few minutes, or I would like skip an event and just stay in my hotel room or whatever it was. And then I'd be like, Oh, I am not a good Thunderbird. I, I'm not the person for this job because I can't give these people everything they want from me. And it wasn't even related to the actual flying. Like I felt like I was doing fine there, but it was the other part of it. And so just that even when you're successful, that little gremlin can sneak back in and you just got to be aware of it. Yeah. And especially when you transition from, um, from being a pilot and in the military into entrepreneurship as well, there must be that, temptation to like you're you're going into an area where i'm sure you have so many translatable skills or transferable skills and you have this skill set and you have this awareness and um also the capacity to work hard that you just it's difficult to get elsewhere and you have all these things going for you but 
you're still inexperienced there and you still haven't done that kind of thing before. And there must be that temptation to, um, I can't remember how oh, you put on your uniform is, is a perfect example. It's like, okay, this, this uniform is a, is, is not exactly me, but it kind of shields me from showing my true self. Were you more aware of that in that transition? And were there kind of, was there still a temptation to cling to that portrayal of a, of the entrepreneur um, and kind of, portray that instead of yourself? So I think because of what I'm actually speaking about and it's what the stuff we're talking about right now. And one of the things I really leaned into as I made the leap into leaving active duty and becoming an entrepreneur is the vulnerability and just being very upfront with what I don't know. Mm. And I've realized that people are so supportive and they're so okay with it. And they've all been there. Like my very first paid speaking engagement, my first client, I'm on the phone with him and he's, you know, asking my rates and all this stuff. And I'm like, I have no idea what my rates are. And I, you know, kind of reached out to someone else in the space and got some idea. And I was like, no, wait, like that's too much. No one's going to pay me that. I'm not, my story, me speaking is not worth that amount. And as I'm talking to this client who is a headmaster of a school, it was a private school that was going to hire me to speak to the students. And he could tell, he could tell that I was like unsure if I could actually. And he's like, look, we value what you have to say. And we know our students will have impact from it. And don't be humble with what you ask for. Don't, it's like, we see the value. So you need to see the value too. And what a gift to have that be my first client, yeah. someone who's been an educator for so long. And he's seen like students go through that. And he saw it happening as I was transitioning. And he was just like, let's have a frank conversation. You are worth this amount. We won't be the last client. Other people are going to be willing to pay you. Like, cause once we set the value or the amount they're going to pay me, I was like, can I bring that amount of value to them? Like, are they going to feel like they got their money's worth? And I said a few things, not quite that blatantly, but that he cued in on. And he was just like, Mace, transitions are never easy. Sometimes you just have to put yourself out there and take a leap of faith. And I was like, that's literally what I talk about. And here I am like not practicing what I preach. And it was just eye-opening to have a third party who didn't know me very well. Like what a great guy. He was just, so perceptive and just so honest. And that was like one of those moments where I was like, okay, I can, it's okay to not be perfect and not have everything figured out and be honest with that. And the vast majority of people are going to be okay with that and be okay with helping you learn. And if they're not, it's probably not your best client. <laughs> like yeah. you could be okay walking away from them. Yeah. What are the go-to tools that you have to help people encourage that kind of vulnerability and that ability to express themselves as they actually are? I think having them trying to create that perspective that we talked about where you look back and you realize it, trying to create that for them when they're not quite naturally to that spot on their own. So I think you'll get there eventually. Most people will get there eventually, but it can be a long road and it can be full of a lot of hard times. And so I, my goal is to kind of elevate the experience for the people that I talk to where they can accelerate that a little bit and 
get past those mental blocks that they're putting in place a little bit faster without having to go through their own slog for so long. And I think when you ask someone, you're like, what you make them say out loud, what are the things that are keeping you from doing these things that you want to do or that you know you should do? And what are you actually afraid of? It's like my nine-year-old, when he comes into our room in the middle of the night, cause he watched stranger things and now he has nightmares. Uh, and he's like, there's something dark in the corner of the room and you just flip the light on. So when they say like, okay, here's the worst case scenario. And they actually think about the words they just said, and they realize that it's not as bad as they've imagined it. It's like, you just turned the light on in the scary bedroom And now this dark thing in the corner you're afraid of is just a pile of dirty laundry. And so just getting people where they can reflect on it like that, it gives them some perspective. And it it just takes an outsider's voice sometimes to to get that. So that's what I hope to give to people. Yeah, we're back to exploring the unknown again. Like That's the, the gift that your dad and other people have given you. Like it's that ability to, to shine a torch on what you don't want to see or flashlight on what you don't want to see and it's like yeah that is that's what you're willing to it's the whole process of going after something that's ambitious um it's the process of expressing uh, authenticity and vulnerability um and it's the real path towards achieving your goal it's like okay i'm going to take a step into that unknown it's going to be dangerous and i might really get burnt it might be really not what i want to see but unless you're interacting with your closest representation of reality it's so difficult to work with it because you're just guessing so being able to show someone like that that is the key do you use um like journaling techniques do you use um conversation mostly like how how are you having encouraging that growth so i'm in the process right now of going through a a pretty amazing um, course on public speaking. And they've really been a great tool to kind of solidify some of the things that I knew I needed to do and things I've gone through into actually actionable items and just like brain dumping ideas out and, you know, brainstorming, whether that's just like free writing or journaling or it's dictation and an app on your phone and just, asking yourself a a prompt being like, who is your favorite teacher in high school? And you just start talking about that. And it takes you down all of these paths of, of memories. And you all of a sudden realize all these like things you learned and how it ties into other things. Mm -hmm. And their big thing is resisting the urge to edit yourself or delete, or be like, this isn't good enough. And I'm trying to create, you know, the best speech I can, but, or authors are trying to create, you know, the best book they can. So you will edit stuff eventually. But I think just in general, for someone who's not, that's not their end goal, doing that stuff can be very cathartic and it can teach you a lot about how you got to where you are. So I've been doing a lot of time trying to get into like deep thinking, which is very difficult in today's society with pinging between emails and social media and all that stuff and just disconnect for an hour at a time or whatever it is and get out sticky notes or get out a notebook or open a blank word document. And I found that super beneficial. Yeah. To jump around completely in my podcast. So were there any role models in the military who expressed 
what you now consider to be the kind of the optimal way to relate to weaknesses? So there was another woman that flew for the Thunderbirds back when I was just graduating from pilot training. And this is funny now because I had just found out I was going to fly the F-16 and I was really excited about that. And then the training base I was at, the Thunderbirds came to town for the air show. And that was the first time I had ever seen the team fly. And after the show, I was, A, I was like, well, that's really cool. And then after the show, there was a social event at the officer's club on base and all the Thunderbirds were there. And the narrator at the time, also an F-16 pilot, um, was a woman, Kristen is her name. And she, I was, I was scared of her. I was intimidated by her. Like we didn't even interact that whole evening. I was like over with my friends, just like, there she is. <laughs> like super intimidated by her. Um, we ended up crossing paths later through a mutual friend. And I went and stayed at her house in Colorado Springs to go do some winter mountaineering. And I all of a sudden realized that she was that person that I had put on a pedestal and like was felt like was unapproachable because she, she wasn't at all. That was just me placing that on her and sorry, hitting my printer. Uh, and now I was at her house and I realized like she had all these same hobbies as me and we were very similar personalities. And she went on to be a commander and would reach out to me while I was on the team because she had done that job, you know, seven, eight years prior and just check in. Cause she knew how difficult the schedule could be and how demanding it was. And she was going through being the commander of an entire fighter squadron at the time. So she was dealing with her own doubts and challenges and stuff. And we would talk about, we would have the most vulnerable conversations about doubt and about empathy and struggles on the team and the Thunderbirds and personality conflicts and that kind of thing. And she was like, yep, we went through all the same things. And I just really, really looked up to her for her kind of unique way she went about leading an entire squadron and her vulnerability and her willingness to get to know people and kind of push them to really have conversations that were vulnerable. Like she would say that she would have some of her instructor pilots who are experienced fighter pilots and they would be, you know, in her office crying about all these things they had going on that they didn't feel like they could share with anyone. And I just, I just really admired that style. And she was a huge role model for me, obviously way back at first when I was scared of her and then all the way to actually getting to know her and how amazing of a person she is. Yeah. I suppose that comes back to, again, like you, you took that risk, you're vulnerable again, and you're able to kind of, yeah, offer up that, that risky maneuver of saying hi. Yeah. Right. And so this ties nicely to a funny story that I talked about recently and the only reason I thought of this story and how it ties to all these things I speak about now is because I was doing kind of that just brain dumping of different stories in my life. And I met my husband just like three years ago when I moved here to Vegas on Bumble and of all things on a dating app and Bumble. If people aren't familiar, you both have to swipe right on each other and then you match, but the woman can only send the first message. And I had matched with this guy and I, I'd seen his profile picture. And if you don't message him within 24 hours, the match disappears and you don't have any contact info for him. You'll probably never see him again. And I decided that he was too good looking for me. And I was intimidated by him and I was just going to let it time out. I was like, 
oh, no, he's out of my league. Like, let it time out. And so it was about to expire. And there's some like extra paid option you can use to extend those matches an extra 24 hours. And all of a sudden I got a notification that he had extended it. And I was like, oh, well, I guess that was like just enough for me to be like, okay, he must be interested. I'll just send him a message. And uh, now we're married. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so fast forward a little bit, but so I talking about what I talk about now and your willingness to take calculated risks and really being like, what is the worst outcome? What are you afraid of? The worst outcome for me was a, he either ghosted me or B, he was like, Oh, I accidentally swiped right on you. I'm not actually interested. Okay. My feelings are hurt for a day and life goes on the best case scenario. We've been married for three years. Like I don't even have my ring on. That was a bad example. I just worked out right before this, but normally I have a ring right there sitting in the bathroom. Um, yeah. So it's just, I think that's such a great example of how we, we come up with these crazy ideas in our head that we're not willing to take this risk. And then when you really look at it, you're like inaction is actually a much bigger risk. Yeah. Yeah. The, the fear of, well, yeah, the risk of inaction is huge. It, it, it can is. be way there's, um, there's a great exercise called fear setting by Tim Ferriss, um, where he takes you through like, okay, what's the risk of doing nothing? And how bad is that out of, the, out of 10? And it's usually like an eight or a nine out of 10. Whereas action, even if it's poor action and going wrong, can be like a five out of 10 bad. And like, oh, okay, I, doing something is better than nothing and keeping that yeah. going is is better. There's a, there's a mental framework that I use the whole time that originated in uh, the US Air Force uh, with John Boyd and the OODA loop. Um, so observe, orient, decide, and act. And this like mental model it's obviously something that you'll be familiar with, but it's working its way into like general um, general population, especially the entrepreneurial world. I think Tim Ferriss talked about it a bunch. Jocko Willink talked about it a bunch on his podcast as well. And um, are there any other frameworks that you've kind of lifted from from the Air Force and then put into your day to day life? I think not as like concrete as the OODA loop, like because that's very like step A, step B, mm-hmm. uh, but more just the power of like preparation and visualizing. Um, So we do what's called chair flying all the time. And you're taught that when you're first learning to fly all the way back when you're a brand new student. And then we still used it on the Thunderbirds. Like every flight we would brief and we would have a map of the current location that we're at because traveling all across the country. So every show site is going to be different. Might be in the mountains, might be over the ocean, whatever it is. And you would, take your pen. And some of us would sit there with our eyes open. And like, as we talked through every maneuver that we were doing in the sequence between um, solos, which is what I flew and the diamond, which is the one through four, we would talk through that. Some people would close their eyes and you could like see they were visualizing actually flying the aircraft and go all the way back to very first learning to fly you would have a cockpit poster, like literally a poster just printed with all the switches and stuff on it on the wall in your home office or whatever it was. You'd sit there in your desk chair with your checklist and you would make the radio calls and you close your eyes and you'd be like, okay, this is the speed. I'm going to pull back on the stick and I'm going to put the gear up and I'm going to do all these things. And it was this whole preparation of visualizing that I know a lot of athletes use. And we would do that to prepare for flying. And that was so huge to get your mind ready to go do something that was so demanding and fast paced. And now I can do that 
with, with my speeches. Right. So of course I will, I will stand here in my office and I will give my keynote and I will have my slides up and I'll practice, but I will visualize the audience. I will actually try to find details or photos of the space I'm presenting in. So I know what it looks like. And I will imagine what the stage looks like. I'll imagine how far I can move to the right and to the left without blocking the screen or the projector and all those things. And I think that's just such a huge habit to develop, to perform at a high level um, that I really pulled from, from being a pilot in the military. Yeah. There's, there's two pieces in that, which is so key. The detail is one of them that like bringing those details to life and going out and doing the extra of research, say, Oh, what, what does this arena look like? Or what does this competition floor look like? That's key. Cause you like, you're not doing something for the first time if your brain thinks you've been there before. And then the repetition is obviously something you're doing consistently at different intervals and you kind of build up a skill set. It's not something you can do once and it works perfectly. It's just the more you do it, the more it kind of, it gets ingrained as something that, oh, this is what I do now. And that helps massively. Yeah, I talk about, we say in the jet a lot, we develop habit patterns. And so you start off reading a checklist being like, okay, step one, turn on this switch. Step two, make sure this is in this position. That is, you will do very well doing that. Like you won't make a lot of mistakes, but it also is super inefficient and super slow. And so as you get proficient at that, you develop a flow in the cockpit where you aren't looking, you aren't reading anything. Your brain can almost, you can almost turn off conscious thought and you just flip all the things, you check all the things and you're like, cool, ready to go. And you rarely make errors when you get to that point as well. There's a little bit of a dangerous time in between where you are know just enough to be dangerous is what we say. But if you can get like, you can go from checklist to habit patterns to muscle memory. It like that takes repetition and that takes intention and discipline and work to get there. But that's where you have to be to perform at a high level. Because it stops being 25 different things and becomes one thing. It's yep. then just one process that you go through. And like that for habit formation is the one for athletes who struggle getting habits down and doing the right things for bedtime for example um for hydrating properly like that's the key it's just chunk it all into sections where it's like okay these are the four or five things that i do at a time and this is what i do every day and it's like oh that's that's one thing now as opposed to 20 things yeah atomic habits i'm sure you've read that talks a ton about that and like stacking habits and pairing them together with things you want to do with things you don't want to do and how to develop all that and i thought that was like a I just read that recently and I was like, oh, this is stuff I've been, that I've done. I've just never like heard it laid out in such a simplified concrete way. So I thought that was a really good book. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, it's a fantastic resource, a really fantastic resource. There's a few questions that I like to wrap up with. Um, first one for this is what was your peak moment of performance for you? Uh, it was so on the team, on the Thunderbirds, it's a constant battle of whack-a-mole is what we like to say, where you go out one day and you just like crush this one maneuver. It's perfect. And then you've been struggling with this other thing. And then the next day, the thing you crushed the day before is all of a sudden terrible. And you're like, what, what just happened? And there was one point I couldn't tell you like what month it was. And it wasn't in front of a crowd. It wasn't the Super Bowl flyover. It wasn't like we would perform sometimes for 300,000 people at a time. Nope. It was on our range here north of Vegas. And I just remember you never have a perfect flight. Things always go wrong, 
But I just remember going out and flying that day. It was late in my first year and everything went so smoothly. It was like everything felt effortless. Staying in formation felt effortless. It was like being in a, you know, people talk about a flow state when they work. It was like being in a flow state in the cockpit. And it was crazy because I was like, wow, is this what it'll be like when I'm, you know, on my second year and I ended up doing three years, which was unexpected, but that happened because of COVID. And the crazy thing is that that flight stuck out in hundreds of flights over three years. And it was at the end of my first year. And I don't think I ever got to that spot again, which is crazy. I mean, I flew great demos many more times as I became more experienced, but for whatever reason that day, everything was just perfect. It like ever, all six of us were operating in that space. It felt like everyone was exactly on time. The formations were great. And you were having to fight to stay there. It was like, oh, this isn't so bad. And it's funny because that one flight just sticks out in my memory. And I I don't know what it was about that day. I wish because I could like recreate it. But I'm sure some athletes have had competitions like that too, where they're like, what was it about that comp? Like, I wish I could identify, was it my diet? Was it my sleep? Like, what made it so amazing? Did you have any pre-flight routines? Uh, yeah. So you had the, like the, the safety and the, the technical aspects for like kind of self-imposed luck routines, that kind of thing. Um, so nothing like super superstitious where people yeah. wear like check red socks or, yeah. or whatever. Um, but we would, you know, always brief the same. We would always have the same mission materials. People would say the same things at the same time just to keep that space. And then we would have what we called our tactical bubble where in between briefing and heading out to the actual aircraft, You would usually have 20 to 30 minutes to, you know, use the bathroom, eat something, whatever. That time is your time where people are not allowed to come in and be like, hey, did you see my email? Do you have this report yet? I really need this. Or like use whatever it is for each person. That's your bubble. That's where people stay out of there. If you need to spend more time chair flying before a flight. You know, you could sit there quietly and rehearse things, which I would do sometimes. Um, So it varied a little bit depending on where I was on that spectrum of habit patterns, muscle memory, proficiency, what I would do during that time. But that was always the bubble. Mm, Nice. And then are there any books that you frequently recommend to others or have gifted to others? For sure. Atomic Habits. Obviously, that's a great one. I just recently read. Um, Deep Work is what I'm reading right now which I found very beneficial and he's very like anti-social media and I have built a brand on social media and I use as my business right now or part of it. It's a great business tool. And so that's something I struggle with is how to disconnect from everything and really dive into deep creative work because I need to do that with what I'm doing right now. And in modern society, our brain has like been adapted to this like constant attention dopamine hits all the time. And it's super hard to disconnect from that. So that's another one that is really good and very relevant right now. Yeah. Really nice. And it's so relevant for so many athletes too. 
because they log on to post their sponsorship branded post or whatever. And then they're like, oh, I'm just going through the the Instagram reel of just like constantly comparing and comparing, comparing, comparing. It's like, it's an endless doom scroll. And yeah. that's, uh, that's where they end up. Okay, finally. And uh, I think there'll be so many people that will want to check you out from this and to see where you're at and to kind of and follow your work. Where can people find you? The two best places are Instagram. I have a ton of the current business stuff I'm doing up there, as well as a bunch of cockpit footage. If you scroll down a little bit and you want to see some cool jet videos. Which is really cool. Yeah. yeah. It's a cool perspective, right? Having a GoPro yeah. in the cockpit firsthand perspective. So that's just at Mace, which is my call sign, M-A-C-E, and then underscore my last name, Curran, C-U-R-R-A-N. So at Mace Curran. And then on LinkedIn, I've been doing, I post daily on there. And that's really been a bunch of the mindset stuff, the motivational stuff. And that's just Michelle and then my call sign Mace in quotes and my last name. So Michelle Mace Kern. Those are the two best spots. Perfect. Michelle, thank you so much for joining me. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Limitless Athlete Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and make sure you follow us on Instagram. So that's MindsetRx, MindsetRxD for the newest updates on the Limitless Athlete Podcast and also to stay up to date with coaching opportunities also and some free workshops coming your way very soon, which I'm very excited about. So see you around. Enjoy all the other podcasts we've got and I'll speak to you soon.